Well, this Sunday marks the first Sunday of what we call Ordinary Time, somewhat uncreative. It isn't Trinity Sunday or Pentecost or Easter season or anything else, and it won't be until all the saints and then Advent once again. I climbed up personally and put those green banners up this past week, and I am glad to know, for one, that I won't have to do it again until November. The color is green, and it will stay that way for a good long while. Why green? Well, green, of course, symbolizes growth. And for us, that means growth in discipleship, growth in the habits of the Christian life, growth in our relationship with Christ, and growth in living out our faith every day. Just above me on the banner is the image of a mature stock of wheat. Wheat that's grown up from a single tiny kernel planted in the springtime, now to a full head with many kernels, each one capable of growing a new stock of wheat of dung. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable about the Christian life being like seed scattered on the soil, some of which takes root and grows, ten, and produces good fruit, ten, twenty, and a hundredfold more than what the sower planted. This is the kind of image that the church uses to think about the ordinary season of the Christian year, the ordinary time of the Christian life, the season from springtime to harvest, when we, like the crops in the field, are meant to take root and grow and produce good fruit for the kingdom. We'll be emphasizing often throughout this season things like the good habits of the Christian life, that contribute to our growth as disciples. Things like prayer, worship, evangelism, stewardship, study, and service. We'll seek to root ourselves more deeply in the good soil of the scriptures and reach out to share the good news of the gospel with our friends and neighbors. We hope that you'll see this season not as a time to just lay fallow and take for granted the great things that God has done for us and for our salvation that we just walked through drama of the Christian year, but instead as time to really grow, to go deeper, to take his promises on faith and live in a kind of way that doesn't make sense unless we're relying on the living Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us forgiveness and reconciliation and the promise of everlasting. But if that's what this season is all about, surely it is a very strange thing to kick it off where we have this Sunday. Everything I've just been saying was rooted in stories where Jesus describes the Christian life as one of gradual growth, like a seed that's planted and over time bears more fruit. I mentioned good habits like worship, prayer, and service, the kind of things that help us grow into mature disciples of Christ over time. But today's gospel story, you'll have noticed, isn't one of gradual growth at all. It isn't a story where someone, let's say, resolves that at a young age to work hard, pray, and worship, and as time goes on, all their hard work is off. Instead, it's a story where a man is depicted as absolutely powerless, subjected to powerful 
control, that are out to take his life for their own. And there may have been a time, we don't know, when the man contributed is bringing about the sorry condition in which he now lives, but the story says nothing about it. That's not the point. It's not a moralistic tale in which someone is depicted as down not because they deserve it. No. This man is just oppressed. He's so oppressed that he's become possessed. Not even able to answer with his own name when Jesus asks him who he is. He's stripped not only of his clothing, but of all power whatsoever. Of his very sense of self. Tormented and driven to the realm of death, to the tombs. By forces that are by now entirely beyond his power to do anything about. It's obvious also a story where these forces, these powers, are out to do him real damage. You notice where he lives, it's not in the house, the story says, but in the tombs. It says that he was naked and had been that way for a long time. Which is another way of saying that he couldn't even show his face in town without feeling shame. We can imagine that he was probably filthy and smelly, with long, unkempt hair and a crazy beard. He was, in short, someone who people avoided, possibly felt disgusted by. So his life had become a living death down there in the tombs, ashamed and alone. The only word I think to describe the forces that would seek to do that to someone, to destroy and shame one of God's good creatures in that way, the only word for it is evil. That is what evil it seeks to degrade, deface, deform, disgust, and finally to destroy. The great preacher and theologian Fleming Rutledge quotes the essayist Lance Morrow on the nature of evil. A crucial difference, Morrow writes, between wrong and evil is that people are implicitly in charge of the universe in which rights and wrongs are discussed. People have systems of laws to right wrongs. But the term evil implies a different universe, controlled by extra-human forces. Wrong is a human offense that suggests that reparation is possible. Wrong is not mysterious. But evil suggests a mysterious force that may be in business for itself and may exploit human agency as part of a larger cosmic conflict between God and devil. Strange as it may sound, and I acknowledge it may sound strange to you, it cannot be emphasized enough that according to the Bible and to Christ our Lord, this is the kind of world in which we find ourselves. That is, you and I live in a world in which the power of evil is at work. Our prayer book's office of that is nighttime prayer, 
quotes First Peter, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resisting firm in your faith. When our Lord taught us to pray, he taught us to ask daily for our Father to deliver us from evil. To say all this, again, strange as it may sound, although less strange than it might seem if you read the news, to say this is to say that there are powers at work that seek our destruction and are stronger than we are. To say that is to say that the biblical language I used earlier about gradual growth and good habits, well, it's good, but it's not enough. It would have done no good to that poor man who lived among the tombs to just tell him that his life would go much better, all things considered, if he adopted proper hygiene, bought a toothbrush and some soap, put on some clothes, and got himself a job. That's good advice. But he was beyond the capacity to receive good advice, to be told to make his bed and clean his room and take responsibility for his actions. Can you imagine what some good, solid advice from Judge Judy, Dr. Laura, or Jordan Peterson would have accomplished in that man's life? Well, good advice, but it was beyond the place where that could have made a difference. Good advice and good habits are good so far as they go, but the man in the tombs possessed by evil forces beyond his control didn't need good advice to send. He needed to be delivered. He needed to be set free. And that's what Jesus did. You might be wondering, why do we need to know this? What good does it do us to go on and on about evil? Well, I don't mean to go on and on about evil, but I can think of two main reasons why we need to cover it every so often as the scriptures bring it up. And the first is that we need this teaching so that we don't become dangerously naive and complacent about the powers of plague and Not long ago, I was rather shocked to learn that someone in this congregation lived next door to where murders were that he was actually at home while it was happening next door. I must have looked shocked when he was telling me about this, because he then went on to tell me that he and I are fortunate to live the kind of lives where something like that shocks us. Mm. Reflecting later on, I realized how true that was. I have never lived on a street where I felt unsafe, or with family members who made me and if you have a life where you're largely insulated from the evil and danger that many people face on a daily basis, you're liable to think that there's no problem in this world that can't be solved with things like better education, better technology, or better politics. Whatever it is, this line of thought goes on to say, there's nothing but a self-help book, the progress of the science, and some common effort can't fix. Well, 
I don't think it's the progress of science and common ethic, but I'm afraid that those are the nostrums of the comfortable. Comfortable words that we say to ourselves to avoid having to confront the radical evil that no amount of merely human effort and education can overcome. When we become naive like that, what happens is that we forget that we stand in need of deliverance from God. We start thinking that we're basically okay the way that we are, and that the gospel is more or less an inspirational message about moral improvement. If that's the gospel that we proclaim, then I'm afraid we'll be nothing but a church of the company, focused on what we can do for God instead of on the deliverance that only God That leads me to the second reason why I think we need the Bible's teaching about evil, which is that no matter how comfortable you or I might feel, we all need deliverance in one way or another. We misread the story, I think, if we think that it's about someone else, one of those hard cases in the streets that no one knows what to do with. No, this story is also about us. Whether we're too proud to admit it or not, you and I are like the man in the tombs too. The prayer book says that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Growth in the Christian life, the ordinary season of growth that we just started, is not primarily a matter of good advice and good habits of getting our acts together. We misunderstand this season. If we think that everything we celebrated just passed from Advent to Pentecost is about what God did for us, and now this season is about what we do for God. No. Before we go, we have to be delivered from evil powers that are beyond our power to control. We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves until God sets us free come to our senses and come back to life again. Somewhat paradoxically, I'll admit, I'm going to leave you today with some words of good advice from Scripture. Earlier I said that good advice is precisely what the man in the tombs didn't need, but I think the kind of advice we heard earlier from 1 Peter is different. I'll repeat it. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, resisting, firm in the faith. It's different that way, because the kind of advice that Scripture gives isn't focused on our own capacity for self-help, but instead on, first, avoiding the evil powers that can overpower us, and, second, Relying on the far greater power of God to deliver and save. First, we do need to avoid the evil powers. Be sober, be watchful, as St. Peter says. There are forces on every side that want to take over your life and destroy everything good God made. This means, in particular, 
anything addictive that you know or suspect is beyond your power to control. Never overestimate the power of sheer willpower to protect you. You and I are usually not as strong as you think we are. Keep yourself away, then, from anything that can overpower you, especially in moments of fatigue or weakness. If it helps, and it usually does, ask friends and family and clergy to keep you accountable. This advice goes not just for addictive things like drugs, but also, I think, for vices that we habitually fall into, like bitterness, pride, and wrath. It can feel good in the moment to make yourself feel big and important by making someone else feel small. It can be, feel good to be in a little group that's complaining and looking down on someone else. But if you keep that up, over time you become the kind of person that no one wants to be around. You'll actually lose the capacity to enjoy God or anything good God has One of the medicines that we have for this is the confession of sins, which we do every Sunday. It's important for us to take that seriously, to seriously examine our lives and hearts every time we do. If you've never used it, the sacrament of confession is in the prayer book, not often used, but it's there, to help us not only confess our sins on Sunday, but genuinely open them up to our awareness and the healing power of God's grace. We're glad to do it. It also can help to just plain old ask a friend who's bold enough to tell you the truth. Was I being a jerk yesterday? Second. Beyond avoiding the evil powers that can overpower us if we're not sober and watchful, we can also resist them by relying on the delivering power of God, firm in our faith that God is powerful. Above all else, we open ourselves to God's saving power when we develop habits of worship, Bible study, and prayer. Does your mind, I wonder, ever wander off into well-worn, destructive thoughts, furrowed out by years of fear or resentment or despair? I don't mind that. It makes a difference to spend just 15 minutes every day being lifted up by the good words of Scripture and the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can use prayer beads or an app on your phone or whatever works for you, too, to lift up your heart in God's prayer throughout the day, not just before bedtime or when you wake up on Sundays. Finally, you can always come to church and worship God with all the beauty and majesty you can muster and receive Christ's own body and blood of the altar. You and I live, it's true, though we hate to admit it, in a world where the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, where on our own we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. But that does not mean that we are powerless. Jesus went out to the tombs commanded the evil spirits to depart, and they obeyed his mighty word. 
the Almighty God.